Friends of Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Okay, so we're in a new venue. Yes, yeah, we're standing around in Paul's new office, which we're still not quite sure about the acoustics yet, so we'll see how this turns out. Yeah, not only are we standing, we also have a very bright light shining down on us. It makes me think this is some kind of interrogation chamber. <laughs> I have a three love burning mic staring at me with a big red but a big red light. This isn't uh, this isn't comfortable. Yeah, but but most disconcertingly, where's the smell of mould? The, the chair has been cleansed. I know. The stool has been I, we, polished. You, you've robbed us of us of our power. This yeah. is like Samson having his hair cut. <laughs> and another another member of the team has bitten the dust because of you. <laughs> Tonight's episode, we're looking at H.P. Lovecraft's story, the thing on the doorstep. We'll look at the themes of the story, how they might be reflected in role-playing games, but first, let's start with the synopsis. So I think the first thing to say about The Thing on the Doorstep is it has one of the great opening lines of Pulp Fiction. I, I, I don't think you can do much better than this for an opening line that sets the tone for the story. It starts off, it is true that I have sent six bullets through the head of my best friend, and yet I hope to show by this statement that I am not his murderer. I, I, you, you just, great, it, it doesn't get any better <laughs> than that. It's reminiscent almost in a way of, uh, was it Ian Banks? Is, uh, today was the day that my mother exploded. Grandmother, Grandmother yes. Yeah. Yes, the, the start of um, The Crow Road. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a grabby first line and you want to know what happens next and you're immediately in that kind of Pulp Fiction kind of mode. Oh, God, yes. And, yeah, it carries on being strong from there. The story revolves around the friendship of Daniel Upton, the story's narrator, and his younger friend, well, younger by eight years, uh, Edward Darby, or Edward Pickman Darby, to give him his full name. So at the start of the story, uh, there's eight years difference between them, as you said, but uh, Darby is only eight years old and up... um, Daniel Upton is 16, so at that age, that's a big difference. Mm. Um, but we'll notice in this story that it does uh, time does move a lot in this story. So um, by the end of the story, Darby is in his 30s. So they've, the, I think the point being they've been friends for a long time. And we're told that the two of them are very close and that Darby calls on uh, Upton, well, pretty much every day. And he gives his uh, characteristic knock. Um, and is viewed almost as part of the family. Yes, and what what seems to draw them together is the fact that Upton is in awe of uh, Darby as a a literary prodigy. The fact that even at a fairly young age he has written this book of poetry called Azathoth and Other Horrors, and has had that published, uh, has had a claim for it and all that, you know, while he's still in his teenage years. And it's not long before Darby is growing up and going to Miskatonic University. 
like any good student, any good student in Arkham. And he studies English and French. He seems to spend most of his time hanging around the library, reading all the same unsavoury texts that a lot of Lovecraft protagonists do. Dooms him from what, the start, what, really. What would that be, Scott? Well, if I remember correctly, there's the Necronomicon, there's Unspeakable Cults, and there's... The Book of Ivon? Ah, yes, of course. Mm-hmm. So uh, you wouldn't want to be out without those. No student is uh, really complete without reading all three of those, I think, not in a Lovecraft story. But, I mean, possibly inspired by this, or possibly because he's a bit of a louche character in general, he seems to fall in with a bad crowd. The bohemian crowd. Mm. Yes. Would, would a bohemian, or would you class someone who's studying medieval metaphysics a bad crowd? <laughs> it I'd... depends what they do with it, Matt. Uh... I did like the fact that his uh, girlfriend, fiance, and future wife studies medieval metaphysics. Yeah, it's become something almost of a running joke in Lovecraftian fiction and in Call of Cthulhu. The Miskatonic University Department of Medieval Metaphysics. And it wasn't until I was rereading the story that I remembered it was a real thing. Me too. Yes. Like, oh, really? I, 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 I reached that bit and I just laughed out loud. There's another bit later on that made me laugh as well. We'll come to that. <laughs> I, I just kept having the, um, the opening track from Shoggoth on the Roof going around in my head, which was... Yeah. There's no other department better for medieval metaphysics anywhere in the world. There are a number of bits of rereading these stories again and having become so familiar with Shoggoth on the Roof, the, the HP uh, Lovecraft Historical Society's musical. There are a number of bits as I reread these stories. I see that word for word uh, are used mm-hmm. in Shoggoth on the Roof, but they're kind of crafted into the lyrics so so wonderfully that uh, it seems like they were made to fit those lyrics. But uh, yeah, I wonder whether it works quite as well in Swedish, but... <laughs> I'm sure it does. <laughs> the ghoul can still steal the show in either case. Yes. <laughs> and yes, so we are in Arkham, who's huddled, sagging gambrel roofs and crumbling Georgian balustrades brood out the centuries beside the darkly muttering Miskatonic. He goes to town on his descriptions of Arkham, and uh, I love all that. He does. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I love that line, the darkly muttering Miskatonic. In addition to you know just hanging out with genuine, generally bohemian people, he learns a bit about magic at this stage. You know, obviously, as well, guided a bit by his reading of all these wrong texts. Uh, and th- there's a hint in there somewhere of him being blackmailed over something, but mm, uh, it it's not expanded on. No, it isn't. And yeah, I mean, that, that's quite tantalising there. You know, considering you know some of the gender ambiguity stuff that comes up a bit later in there it's almost it's almost like teasing something there isn't it mm. because you know he's um darby is described again you know as being very feet and slightly effeminate and so on and I, I i just wonder whether this was you know lovecraft's caricatured way of almost of, of you know portraying him as, as gay or bisexual oh that's mm. a, it's interesting certainly that theme does occur later in the story yeah See, I just took it that it was describing that they were practising some of the rites that they'd read in the books, that it was referring to actual practising of magic, which they were being blackmailed over. Maybe, but you know, it focuses on the, on the fact that Darby was blackmailed. It doesn't mention about any of the others. Mm-hmm. So Maybe yeah. they're the one that thought, oh, he's the weakling, we can, be, we can get money out of him rather than anyone else. Yeah, it could be. I could be reading too much into it, but it just struck me as being you know, odd that it wasn't expanded on. Mm. Now, by this time... Uh, Edward is 34 when his mother dies, and uh, yeah, Lovecraft, Lovecraft does state... Now, how old are you now, Matt? Uh, 30. 31 on Monday. Okay, well, you haven't got long, because Lovecraft clearly states that despite his middle age, 
Ah, 34. <laughs> so you got three more years. Thank, thanks, guys. Don't know what that makes me and Scott. <laughs> Ageless, eternal. <laughs> well, older than Lovecraft ever was for you, Scott. Yeah, that's true. I'm still in there. <laughs> yeah. Not for long. Yeah, I mean, if you hurry up and die in the next few months, you'll be fine. Yeah. You're the only, you're the only one with a grin on your face at the minute, Paul. Come on. It's just nervousness. Uh, but, but yeah, it was quite interesting the way he talks about uh, Darby's reaction to his mother's death as being a kind of liberation. Because there's all this stuff earlier in the story about how Darby is a very uh, costed child. You know, that he's given a very overprotective uh, upbringing. It, it, it struck me particularly, I mean, we'll, we'll discuss this perhaps more in the, the next section, how much this reflected Lovecraft's own upbringing. Yeah, definitely. Um, but like you said, we'll come to that later. I think there's a lot to talk about there. Oh, God, isn't there just... Uh, but, yeah, it, it's the fact that, you know, they, it talks about this being a liberation for him, but it's a very brief liberation because, you know, it, four years later, you know, he, he finds another dominating female presence in his life. Asenath Waite. So this story is divided into seven sections, much as some of his other um, stories are. And we start part two. Uh, Edward was 38 when he met Asenath Waite. She's described as being um, dark, smallish, and very good looking, except for the overly protuberant eyes. Which sets off alarm bells for anyone who's read much Lovecraft or played the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, and it turns out to be entirely founded. <laughs> well, he doesn't go to any attempt to mask what's going on here. I mean, a couple of paragraphs on, we're learning that she's virtually possessing other students in the class. Yeah. Yes, th this is not a subtle story. No, he just lays it on the line. So the first line, we're told that the guy has shot his best friend dead. Then we're told, you know, that he's basically married a witch. From yeah. Innsmouth. From Innsmouth. Mm. And if we've read The Shadow of Innsmouth, pretty clear that she's a deep one. Yes, yeah. she has the look. But also, yeah, as you said, she he's laying it on the line there that she is doing these... What, what are described in the text initially as these acts of hypnosis, making it appear like she is looking out of someone else's eyes and they're looking out of hers. But obviously, you know, as the story goes on, this turns out to be something a bit more sinister. There was a line I liked in here um, where he's talking about um, the ancient seaport and the, the uh, in inverted commas, not quite human... Uh, ancient families that live there, tales such as old-time Yankees could, can devise and repeat with proper awesomeness. <laughs> proper awesomeness. <laughs> that, that Not just amateurish <laughs> awesomeness. It, it sounds like that should be delivered with a Yorkshire accent. <laughs> <laughs> so we're told that her father, Ephraim Waite, could raise or quell storms. Um, obviously, you know, he was a great wizard of some kind. Or oh, and beans. <laughs> Thanks for that, Scott. And uh, and that he died insane under queer circumstances, which is kind of foreshadowing things to come. We don't quite know what that's about yet, but it's not good. Yeah, no, it turns out to be extremely significant. Mm -hmm. But it kind of gives us the hint here, just before Asenath entered the school. And then in the next paragraph, we're told that she also professed to be able to raise thunderstorms. Coincidence? Mm. Maybe. Like daughter, like father. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> that should have been the subtitle to this story. Yes. 
So we get quite a bit about her exchanging personalities with other students, but it's kind of a almost like a parlor trick that she's kind of doing with them. It, it doesn't seem to go very far. Yes. Um, just that it kind of freaks people out and they think she's a bit weird. And there's another great bit here. Um, Asanath believed um, she was very disappointed by her own um, femininity and believed that a male brain had certain unique and far-reaching cosmic powers. But that's just fantastic. Yeah, a fact that... I think we can all agree on. Um, <laughs> but it reminded me of, have you seen the Harry Enfield sketch, Women Know Your Place? Oh, God, yes. Over-education leads to ugliness, premature ageing, and beard growth. <laughs> Women, know your limits. In thought, be plain and simple, and let your natural sweetness shine through. So, they get married, and after honeymoon, they move into the Crown and Shield house, uh, and take on some... Three servants. Well, they take on three servants after their honeymoon to Innsmouth. <laughs> Is it to Innsmouth? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of all the honeymoon destinations in all of Lovecraft County, you had to pick that one. Yeah, yeah. I, Asenath <laughs> insists they go on honeymoon to Innsmouth immediately after they're married, and they come back with the servants, plus tr uh, trunks of books and strange apparatus and so on, which just happen to belong to, to Ephraim. I think you could pick up a few tips here, Matt, if you, uh, you know, read this carefully. <laughs> you know what? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not spending a night in the Gilman Hotel, No. <laughs> uh, and the three servants were uh, made up of an incredibly aged couple and a swarthy young wench with a perpetual odour of fish <laughs> can't imagine why <laughs> yes for the next couple of years our protagonist sees less and less of Darby which yeah when couples get married isn't exactly an unusual thing but I know, I know here that he says a fortnight would sometimes slip by without me hearing that, that characteristic knock a fortnight? That doesn't seem that long not to see somebody who's just got married. But, yeah, I mean, that's the thing that, you know, in this, the, the two of them have been living in and out of each other's pockets. So, obviously, you know, there's, there's this whole aspect that this has proved to be a great upheaval on their lives and their friendships and a great change anyway, even without the supernatural aspects of it. Uh, and, you know, the, the two seem to be almost intermingled in the, the narrator's mind, but they, 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 there's perhaps nothing particularly unusual about this paint. Hmm. Well, apart from the honeymoon in Innsmouth. So it kind of progresses pretty quickly to us knowing that Darby is being possessed occasionally, to some degree, by yes. Asenath. Well, it builds up a little bit there. I mean, there's hints about... People seeing um, you know, Dar Darby coming out of the house uh, with you know, uncharacteristic body language and expression on his face and probably more tellingly driving a car when he doesn't know how to drive and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, it, it becomes it pretty kind of, obvious, you know, even before it's stated outright, what's going on. It paints the picture quite nicely and in, in stages, but it's pretty clear to the reader what is happening from, from early on. I think... I've read this before, but I think even on first reading, you'd pick up those things pretty quickly. Uh, yeah, I think so. As I said before, it's, it's not a subtle story. Mm. No, not meant to be a mystery, is it? No. Um, but it still holds surprises. And the thing about him being possessed is that it seems that she can't possess him 
for any predictable length of time. So she takes over his body and he goes off as Asenath and goes and participates in strange magical rites in strange places and then suddenly bingo he's back in his own body yeah sometimes in the middle of the rites the cyclopean ruins in the heart of the main woods beneath which vast staircases lead down to abysses of knighted secrets of complex angles that lead through invisible walls to other regions of time and space pretty strange things that she's ended up finding yeah. They sound pretty cool. We don't find out much about them. We just hear these hints, but sounds good. And also the pit of the Shoggoths. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we'll get back to that in our, our analysis bit of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, that bit leaps out at me. Uh, the, the, the other thing that comes out of this section as well is uh, a throwaway bit initially where um, Darby uh, intimates to Upton that he believes that Ephraim is still alive. Yeah, that's kind of strange. Yeah. Which, what do we make of that? Yeah, uh, well, I, in a story sense, it's foreshadowing. But, yeah, uh, yeah it's, uh, it's interesting that it's phrased that way from the character. You know, wh- whether he's actually worked out what's going on, and he's worked out that his bride isn't actually Asenath, but that he's married you know, Ephraim in Asenath's body. Well, people seem very ready to... Um figure out what is going on because in that part where she's possessing people the people at the Miss Clonic University seem to know that she's possessing people oh you know she possesses people that woman it's like oh yeah I know who you mean yeah it's kind of strange but but on the other hand it's Miss Clonic University and wouldn't you just think you know oh she's a bit weird you wouldn't go around thinking oh yeah that's that's the gal who possesses people Okay, yeah. Miskatonic universe. Yeah. Yeah. Only in Arkham are you going to get away with a statement I, like I, that. I, 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 I don't know what the Latin for weird shit happens, but it should be the motto of Miskatonic <laughs> University. So, they've been married for three years. Uh, as I say, time he's not afraid of letting time fly by in this story. It doesn't all happen in a couple of weeks. Um, this is over a long period of time. Um, when um, Darby comes back as a... As a looking like a madman, bedraggled and stumbling out of the woods. And that's when he starts raving about the pit of Shoggoths, yeah, down the 6,000 steps. And uh, comes out with some great lines of, of raving, throffing madness. But but it's more than that. When he does that, that's when uh, Upton has to go out and pick him up from Maine. Mm. Drives out, picks him up. And you know, it's in the drive back that Darby is starting to intimate a lot of his suspicions and what's going on. And then halfway through, his body language changes, the expression on his face changes, and he just says, oh, basically, yeah, ignore all that stuff. Takes what was con- I thinking? Yeah, takes yeah. control of the wheel of the car and drives off. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, do not listen to a single thing I just said. It was not true. <laughs> <laughs> Ephraim is described in the story in such a way that he comes across as a... a a, a cool, calculating intelligence and manipulator, uh, and you know, a profoundly powerful and clever sorcerer. But dear God, is he shit at covering his tracks sometimes? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, that, that's that's the kind of bold face, in yeah, inarticulate. Um, <laughs> that's a good but point I think to stumble the, there. It's, it's, like, the, it's the pulp style, yeah. really. It's kind of giving it to us on a plate. It's not trying to be too clever and disguise it. But he, but, but he lies worse than your average six-year-old. Yeah. Well, all he needs is a twirling moustache and he'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, d- he didn't put any points in Fast Talk. <laughs> this is true. 
Although it just he's has a, a look at the dice that I do. He's a sorcerer. <laughs> Who needs social skills when you're a motherfucking sorcerer? <laughs> also, I think it's on that drive back, or at least around this point, that um, Darby starts really going off on one and sort of saying, right, that's it, I'm going to kill her, going to kill her. Uh, mm. uh, you know, it's, it's either then or just after then. Uh, yeah, he, he comes to the realisation that she's got to be killed. Yeah. Darby goes to visit Upton at some point and basically says, you know, hey, good news, uh, you know, Asenath's gone, uh, she's left, she's, t- you know, she's taken the servants with her, or he, I've dismissed the servants. But notably, I think she returned to New York. She's gone mm-hmm. to New York, which I thought, given Lovecraft's life, was an interesting um, place for her to end up going. But Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, that he hopes to be able to get divorced and the servants have gone and everything, so uh, yes. life's good again. Yes, but for some reason he stays uh, rattling around in that big old house, even without the servants. Time passes, and then sometime later, Darby turns up on Upton's doorstep uh, in a hell of a state, falling apart, talking about tugging at his brain and generally losing his shit. Uh, so you know, Upton, like yeah, any good friend, has him committed, uh, dragged off to the Arkham Sanitarium, uh, where... Uh, he, he wibbles quietly in his room. Uh, For some time. Until? Until they get a call uh, from the sanitarium saying, ha, your buddy Darby, he's fine now, he can come home. Yeah, he can't quite remember everything that's happened recently, but he seems perfectly sane again. We don't need to worry about that, he's complimentous. A short while after that, Upton gets a very strange phone call. Uh, yeah, glub, glub, glub. He he gets a phone call full of glubbing. (laughs) Yeah, again, I mean, this has become just a joke thing that Deep One say, glub, glub, glub. (laughs) It's in the story. He actually says glub, glub. But to be fair, that's less to do with her being a Deep One at this stage and more to do with her being a a putrid corpse. She's (laughs) a Deep One zombie. (laughs) A Deep One zombie corpse. (laughs) Yes. It's a zombie Deep One. I mean, how cool is that? (laughs) But, yeah, after the phone call, which is just lots of incoherent glubbing, uh, this figure, the thing on the doorstep, turns mm-hmm. up, which is described, if I remember correctly, as something like a fetid dwarf. Yes. <laughs> which is a... Wearing um, Pickman's clothes. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, yeah. I mean, God, if there isn't a metal band out there somewhere called Fetid Dwarf, someone's missing a trick. <laughs> but, yeah, they, they, this, this fetid dwarf turns up, hands Upton a bit of paper. With a uh, pen stuck through it. Yeah. <laughs> Upton reads three paragraphs, passes out... <laughs> Yeah, or he faints. Or well, yeah. wakes up, passes out again, if I remember right, yeah. and yeah. seeing what the thing on the doorstep is. Yeah. That's two yeah. sanity rolls. That must be two separate sanity <laughs> rolls to faint twice <laughs> like that. Yeah, one from the letter and one from waking up and seeing the rotted corpse and piecing his <laughs> Oh my God, are you still here? <laughs> or liquefied corpse. Yeah, yes. that, that, is, that is a real bastard of a keeper there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I don't know how you're going to get <laughs> that out of the carpet. <laughs> Wait, yeah, okay, uh, you, you come round the following morning, eh? <laughs> there's light, you can see what's on the doorstep, make another sanity. For fuck's sake! <laughs> Make another oh. sanity roll. Failed. Just wake up for the first one, damn you! <laughs> From there, of course, he, having read the letter, uh, he now knows that we know his, his magical defences in inverted commas was putting a bullet in the back um, in the back of uh, Asenath's yeah Asenath's head head yeah and, and burying her corpse in the basement. Yes, yeah. you're leaving under a pile of boxes in a um, in a room in the cellar. And then, you know, sending the servants off who carried on blackmailing him. But that wasn't enough. He didn't destroy the body. It could still communicate with him. 
mm. and ultimately possess him. So, so Ephraim's spirit, one more time, uh, reaches out, swaps bodies and leaves uh, poor Darby trapped in the rotting corpse of uh, his, his erstwhile deep one wife. And off to Arkham Sanitarium heads Mr. Upton to carry out the deed that he told us about in that very first line, putting six bullets through the head of his best friend, which, yes. which the letter implores him to do. And, and leaving behind an exhortation that the body should be cremated so that the, this, this blasphemy can stop from this point onwards. But, yeah, of course you know that's not going to happen. Well, we don't know. <laughs> to be continued. If 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 I were GMing this game, no. No, no definitely not. <laughs> yeah, wonderful bit which we sort of glossed over at that stage was the fact that um, you know th there's a little snippet earlier uh, which is quite important about the the way in which uh, Ephraim died. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, because yeah, that, that's elaborated a bit more as the story goes on, and, we, and I think we missed that bit out, and it's it is quite crucial. Which is that you know he he in turn died in a sanitarium. Uh, he uh, was was screaming and and cursing and uh, crying and so on. And the implication, of course, is the fact that that's the point at which Ephraim had possessed Athenath or swapped bodies with her, and basically. You know, shunted you know, his old body off into a sanitarium and probably poisoned her. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it, th this really is a dark story. Oh, it sure is. But let's, let's save the discussion of how dark that is for part two. Previously on The Good Friends of Jackson Elias... Uh, we were discussing The Thing on the Doorstep. This is a very detail-heavy story, and with good reason, I think. It's, it's a very creepy story as well. Very dark. Yes. Mm. Before we get into just how creepy and what makes it creepy, um, th this is one of the, uh, the last stories that was published of Lovecraft, or at least in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. uh, he died in, what was it, March 1937, and this was published in Weird Tales in January 1937. Yeah. I believe it was written in 1933, and he basically had it sitting around for a while, not thinking too much of it, and then was, was talked into sending it off to Farnsworth Wright. Uh, and, yeah, it was one of the last things of his that he saw published. Yeah, he was a pretty harsh critic of his own work. Uh, I was listening to an interview with William Pugmire uh, on, um, on YouTube this afternoon about this story, uh, and he was saying that Lovecraft had written quite a few other stories that he refers to in his letters that he just scrapped, that, hmm. you know, we don't have anymore, um, that he destroyed. He just wasn't happy with them. I mean, this one could have gone the same way. Yeah, just glad it didn't. And um, you know, I think we've got hints at some of these, what some of these other stories were in his letters, but we don't have the manuscripts, which is kind of sad. But mm. Lovecraft's not the only one who was fairly dismissive of this. I and mean, this is not one of his more highly rated stories, which yeah, and I can see that it it lacks perhaps the the cosmic scope of something like uh, Dreams of the Witch House or you know The Call of Cthulhu or you know and some of the the reality mind bending stuff of The Shadow Out of Time. But at the same time, uh, I think as a horror story, this is as horrific as anything he ever wrote. It lacks the kind of weight of some of those other stories. Like you say, this feels kind of lighter. It feels a bit pulpier. Yeah. Um, but 
Yeah, the themes that it addresses aren't the ones that usually Lovecraft is, is dealing with. Well, I, I think, I, I mean, we'll, we'll go into that in a moment. I think there are actually, a, you know, a number of repetitions of Lovecraftian themes that echo in this story. In a lot of ways, it seems to be a, 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 almost a synthesis of some of his earlier work. Uh, but, yeah, the other thing that struck me as being quite unusual about this is it's much more character-driven and much more of an emotional piece mm. than really any other Lovecraft story I can think of. You know, it, it has characters in it who aren't just ciphers, who aren't just there to observe weird details. But, you know, you're looking at human relationships here, you're looking at friendships, you're looking at a dysfunctional marriage, you're looking at... Uh, the the ways that real human beings interact with each other. And you don't see that in Lovecraft. You just don't. No, in his book, um, Tour de Lovecraft, Kenneth Height kind of, Im- well, he doesn't imply. He says that uh, this is an unusual story for Lovecraft and one that he's not really equipped to write. Mm-hmm. I, I, I disagree with that. I mean, you know... I, I think that, yes, all right, in a, a slightly defter hand, a lot of the more emotional, uh, and, and, you know, again, I'll probably bring this up later, some of the psychosexual elements of it probably could have been handled in a more interesting way. But, yeah, I, I, I think this is an incredibly potent and underrated horror story. I must admit, though, from the other Lovecraft stories I've read, I didn't, not to say I didn't enjoy this one, but I didn't enjoy it anywhere near as much as any of the other Lovecraft I've read. Really? Okay. No, it's, it's one that stuck with me. I think, yeah, as, as we mentioned in the last segment, I, I find this a very, very dark story. And, yeah, part of it is, you know, the, the whole question of sanity and identity and so on. But a big part of it is just that image at the end of, you know, someone... It, it's, it's like... Um, it, it's like an even more horrific version of a Poe story in some ways. I mean, not only have you disposed of this body you know, in, in the, the cellars, or not only have you got the equivalent of someone being walled in and left to die there, <laughs> but they're being walled into a rotten corpse and trying to make their plight known and trying to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else, despite the fact that they're so decomposed they can't even speak. Uh, it's, it, it's, it is just such a horrific thing. It's, it's horrific, it just doesn't particularly strike me as being a mythos story. Not in the same way that the stories are crafted and presented. Maybe, but yeah. I guess maybe that's because there's no... Um, well, there's a supernatural element of possession, but beyond that there's no... Uh, well, there's a reference to a Shoggoth, but there's no um, overt kind of alien races or, or anything like that in there that we do see in some of the other stories which tie it strongly into the mythos. This is more of a story of kind of Witchcraft, essentially, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah, or, psych- or psychic power, but you know, yeah, not, not enough tentacles per square inch for me. But that's just <laughs> that's just my thing. Yeah, it's it's not really a cosmic horror story, but there are elements of that. I mean, he certainly uses a lot of the cosmic horror that he's used in other stories as window dressing in this, mm. and very effectively. That that whole section that you read out earlier, Paul, uh, the the bit about. Um, that the, you know, those uh, cyclopean ruins in the the heart of the main woods, uh, I thought was fantastic, and you know the, the whole thing about him going down what was it the seven hundred steps uh, down to the pit of the Shoggoths and kind of waking up in the middle of that ritual and so on, I thought was fantastic. Yes, yeah, so detail more of that, and I'd be happy. That, well, that's where the, that's where I would enjoy the story to have gone. Yeah, I, the thing is, I I like these little snippets in Lovecraft, and I like the fact that they're not detailed because. They they become all the more evocative for that. You know, they, I I think it's you know the the, the same 
the same problem that a lot of horror you know, potentially runs into, which is if you show so too much, it stops being scary, it stops being effective. You know, the, the most the most horrific, the most mind-bending things you can put in there are the bits that you leave other people to fill in the gaps for. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the thing on the doorstep is quite powerful in that respect because, you know, it evokes just enough of these things without laying it on too thickly. So what themes crop up in this, in, in this story, the thing on the doorstep? There's quite a few. Yeah, pa- paranoia is a big one. Yes, yeah, and again, that goes back to this being an unusually emotional uh, story for Lovecraft. Uh, that you know, he is describing emotions other than fear, and you know, I mean, paranoia certainly touches on that. But there is the you know the the the, the whole aspect of you know a friendship corrupted that comes in there, which <laughs> which feeds the paranoia, which is very unusual. But I, I suppose in that respect, it it probably most closely resembles the Whisper in Darkness. In that, you know, yeah, in the way that he's um, saying, you know, destroy the evidence, and you know, it didn't really happen, and come and meet me, and you know, and yes. it, it, yeah, a lot like what happens in in uh, the Whisper in Darkness, but also Shadow Out of Time with the possession. Yes, um, I think that 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 theme of being possessed by someone else is a very strong one in this story. Yeah. But all the more so for the whole different gender thing. Yeah, well, I was touching on that earlier. I, this is, I suppose, one of the strange things about this story, which is Lovecraft throws that element in there and then never really you know, explores it at all. Um, you know, the, 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 he is being possessed by this entity in his wife's body and being forced into her body. Well, but, he's being possessed by his father-in-law uh, yeah. in his wife's body. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Lovecraft sort of sets all these things up, but then deals with it, you know, that aspect of things, the, 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 the sexual aspect of things, in a completely almost dismissive, matter-of-fact way, mm. which is very Lovecraft. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> I mean that, that, that's, that's obviously a bit too squidgy for him, but uh, it just seems weird that, you know, you, you wouldn't at least mention anything, you know. Well, maybe even the, as you said about not stating everything directly or at least revealing only hints of it, I think maybe, especially because there's enough of what Lovecraft didn't like himself in there with regards to like what you mentioned about going back to New York. I mean, that's a pretty mm. horrific uh, thing for him to contemplate anyway. Well, I was thinking more with the whole marriage thing with Sonia and him mm. living in New York when mm. they were married and Sonia living in New York. And when the, when Darby gets divorced, he says his wife's gone back to New York. It doesn't say she's gone back to Innsmouth. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's where Sonia was, and I just wonder if, you know, that's a reference to that. Well, in a lot of ways, this does seem to be a very, very autobiographical story. But for a child, start... Child prodigy, for one. Yeah. Mm. But, but, yeah, the, the cloistered childhood, the overprotective uh, mother figure. Uh, then, you know, th- th- there's this whole thing, and I can... Yeah, I, I, I must admit, I haven't read enough biographies of Lovecraft to know for sure, but I can certainly imagine this whole thing about being dominated effectively by his wife's spirit. Um, you know, he was in a position living in New York in a, a, a city he didn't really know, being financially supported by uh, a woman who, you know, from all I've read was very outgoing and very uh, personal in a way that Lovecraft, you know, in person maybe wasn't quite so much. And so, you know, the, 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 this whole thing about, you know, her personality taking over and dominating, you know, I wonder was... You know, his way of working through 
you know, his his relationship with Sonny Green. I think that's unavoidable that that, that can be read into it. Also, when when with the first two uh, characters described, um, Upton and Darby, they seem to me to be both aspects of Lovecraft. Mm. Um, there's he describes Darby as we've said as this uh, young sickly child who had a nurse with him everywhere he went. Uh, he was very learned. He was very scholarly. He was very good at uh, writing poetry and fiction, and you know, Lovecraft shared many of those traits and certainly viewed himself as very sickly, I believe. Um, but but you know, that Derby is almost a, a kind of a wish fulfillment for for Lovecraft. He he does go on to to great to, well to some success, and his parents do survive. His father does take him to Europe, which is somewhere, you know Lovecraft would have loved to have visited, I think. Um, and on the other hand, we have Upton, who is a much more kind of upstanding member of society, isn't corrupted, but, but he, he seems to share some of Lovecraft's traits as well. It, well, particularly the sort of mentoring of a, a younger figure, because yes. Lovecraft did a lot of that with, you know, uh, he, there, there were all sorts of young writers who you know, turned to him for advice and inspiration. And, you know, he was a mentor to, to dozens of people. Mm -hmm. And that relationship is very much written into this story. The other one that leaps out to me is the image of the kind of mother father, because you've got the gender blurring there. The at least the parental figure that goes uh, that dies screaming in an asylum. Mm. Oh yes, of course, yes, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I think Lovecraft drew a lot from himself, and maybe that's why this is such an emotional story because. You know, so much else of what he wrote was, you know, imaginings or, you know, one degree of removed from reality. But this seems to be very much rooted in the reality of his own life. I wonder if maybe that's why it's uh, less realistically portrayed and more kind of in a pulp style, which, you know, I, I kind of felt it's more in a pulp mm. style. Um, it's more kind of broad brush, kind of dramatic, kind of action filled um, and a bit over the top maybe that allowed him to kind of bring these theme themes in whereas perhaps he wouldn't have wanted to address these themes in a in a you know a more heavyweight story like mountains of madness and so on yeah it gave him a degree of emotional distance maybe for talking about all these very emotional things i wonder and also maybe why I sat on it for so long yeah yes possibly but we were talking about the theme of identity in this and, you know, this is not exactly an unusual theme for Lovecraft. We've mentioned the shadow out of time and the, the body swapping or body theft in that. Uh, we've mentioned the, the identity games in The Whisper in Darkness. But, of course, that, that also turns up in uh, the, the Evil Clergyman, which was written about this time. Uh, you know, it's again about you know, someone having their identity t stolen or taken over. Uh, oh, okay. But, I can't remember that. I'm, yeah, I remember the title, but I don't remember the story. Well, The Evil Clergyman's a weird one. It's a very short piece, and yeah. uh, Lovecraft wrote it around 1933, I think. And I don't think he intended it to be a story. He Apparently he wrote it in a letter to, maybe it was Frank Belknap Long. And, um, yeah, he was describing a nightmare he'd had, and, and wrote it in, you know, sort of fictional terms. Uh, and, yeah, it, it became that story. But it, it, I believe it was published posthumously, so maybe he never even intended for that to happen. Mm. But it certainly seems to cover very similar themes. Yeah, if I remember right from... Because um, I haven't read the, the story either, but I do remember the, I remember the title. I think it does come up chronologically last in a lot of collections of Lovecrafts that I've got. Yeah, I think it was published around 39 or so. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yes, the other story that this reminds me of is Cool Air, which was one of the first Lovecraft stories I read. Because it's the same kind of thing of um, someone trapped within a decomposing form. Uh, but, you know, in Cool Air, it's the fact that you know, the, the, chap, uh, the doctor at the centre of it has survived death effectively by keeping himself refrigerated so that he doesn't decompose. And as soon as his refrigeration breaks down, that's the point at which the flesh starts to melt off his bones. Glub, glub. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, yeah. The, the thing on the doorstep itself reminded me an awful lot of the, the doctor's final fate from Cool Air. Articles going back to Shoggoth on the roof. The glub glub just reminds me of the um, if I were a deep one. Yes. We've seen that this story draws a lot on elements from the Shadow of Rinsmith, and one thing I was trying to work out was how it really fits into the timeline of the Shadow of Rinsmith. I mean, the story itself takes place over quite a long time, and there's nothing that really anchors it to any particular date. Later on in the story, there is a reference to uh, Darby uh, having a drink. And certainly, I think Upton serves him uh, mm-hmm. a drink at some stage. So, I mean, that could be bootleg, but it could be an indication that this happens after the end of Prohibition, which would actually place it around 1933. Well, it would. That would be contemporary when the story is written. Uh, and indeed, Darby is, what is he, eight at the start of the story, and he's into his 40s. By the end of the story, yeah, so this has taken 40s. place over 35 years or so. Yeah. So um, so that would set it starting about 1900 and going up to what was then the modern day. But, I mean, for argument's sake, then, if we say that the latter part of the story does take place around 1933, then that's three years into the marriage. So if the raid on Innsmouth was 1927-28 time, then you know, the honeymoon to Innsmouth and some of the trips and so on all come after mm. the fall of Innsmouth. Mm. Lovecraft wasn't exactly exacting with his canon and his timelines and so on, so you know, I, I don't think we can necessarily read too much into that, but one possible interpretation of it, for me at least, is that it's hinting at some survival of Innsmouth after the raid. Well, they didn't level it to the ground or raise it to the ground, rather, did they? No, but, I mean, they did shell it, they sent troops in, you know, they burnt it to the ground, they rounded up people, they put them in concentration camps, I mean, that... Well, the buildings are still there, and there's no reason to say then yeah. why it couldn't have been developed and then redone afterwards. Mm. So the, the the physical place still exists. It's, mm. hey, you've gone to a holiday in a ghost town, woohoo! Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of other pleasant sites in Lovecraft County you could go to, but... Hey. Well, that, that just makes the honeymoon even more fucked up. I mean, <laughs> we're not only going to your, your, your creepy old family home in this creepy old town on the coast that full smells of creepy fish. old people, but it's actually full of smoking ruins and craters. <laughs> <laughs> and that explains why Asenath then goes to New York after the, the breakup of the marriage, rather yeah. than back to Innsmouth. Yes, because if, if potentially has been raided. You know, yeah, there potentially wasn't a lot of Innsmouth to go back to. It's yeah, not, it's not the holiday destination it once was. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's no Blackpool. <laughs> One question I've seen raised an awful lot about this story is whether it's misogynistic. I, Lovecraft didn't exactly go out of his way to put positive female characters in his stories. In fact, it's pretty rare to see a female character of any description in any of his stories. Yeah, this is one of the few that does have female character in. But uh, is she female at all? I was just about to say, no, no, the body's female. <laughs> yeah. It's like, just a man in a woman's body. Exactly. I mean, technically, there are no women in this story. Oh, no, that's not true. There are the servants from Innsmouth. 
But, yeah, Asenath isn't Asenath anymore. She is Ephraim in Asenath's body. I mean, yeah. By the time the events of this start, uh, Asenath in Ephraim's body has died screaming in a madhouse. So the accusations that you could put there about her being a controlling character, about her being a, a poor uh, female stereotype uh, and so on, are kind of weird in this case. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying you can't make those points. It's just the fact they're undermined somewhat by the fact that she's really meant to be a man. It's coming from the lips of a male character, just not a fem- just a female body. There's a very big difference there. There's one particular quotation which I've seen mentioned in the context of this being misogynistic, which you touched on earlier, Paul, which was that line, Her crowning rage was that she was not a man, as she believed a male brain had certain unique and far-reaching cosmic powers. Again, if you put that in uh, the context of a rather sexist old man possessing this body that he doesn't particularly want to possess, then yeah, that, that almost sounds like excuses. Mm. Yeah. He, he just wants to, he's longing for the time when he can finally get back in a male body. Yeah. yeah. And this is the character in the story talking, not necessarily the author speaking and, and expressing his view. I don't think that's making an excuse. I think that's, that, that is the case. No. And one one thing that sprang to mind when I was rereading this story, as uh, quite a nice contrast, was uh, an old episode of Star Trek. Uh, I don't know if you remember that one from uh, Star Trek, the original series, uh, called The Turnabout Intruder, where there's... Oh, I can't remember the character's name, but this female character who basically... Uh, has decided that she wants to be captain of the Enterprise, or she wants to be captain of a starship. But there's this thing in the original series that Starfleet have decided that women are not capable of being captains. Janeway. (laughs) (laughs) All I'm going to say on the matter. Yeah, let's gloss over that. Um, But uh, so she's decided that her fast track to promotion is basically to use a bit of alien tech, is it? I I can't remember. The only thing I can remember about the original series is either Kirk loses his shirt in most episodes, ended up ranting at some brains in the jars, and then ran away from a a very large green lizard while making a cannon against a sliding rock. That's about it. I I think you've summed up all the best bits. Yeah, Yeah. But, yeah, she uses this this bit of alien tech or something like that to switch brains with Kirk and um, basically takes over as Captain of the Enterprise. No one believes that Kirk is Kirk in her body. And, uh, yeah, it it does get... Where the parallel with this came in was that struck me as being kind of oddly more misogynistic because... Yeah, her, it's like her big fatal flaw in that is the fact that she perceived females as being uh, lesser, uh, mm. that, that she perceived women as being you know, very much the weaker sex, and that you know her solution to this was to become a man. And you know, th- there are echoes of that in this story, but it's not that at all. I think the easiest way for Kirk to convince the rest of the crew it was him would be just to get down on his knees and yell... There are a couple of mentions in here which will be familiar to fans of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. In particular, there's the first mention that I, I think uh, that comes up of the uh, the book of poetry Azathoth and Other Horrors, uh, written by written uh, by Darby at quite a young age. Yeah, yeah. Um, he writes that when he's in his teens. Yeah, he's like about that. seventeen or eighteen or something yeah. when he does it. But 
Yeah, the thing that struck me as being interesting about that is that, you know, it talks later in the story about how he went to the Biscatonic University and read all the usual forbidden tomes and Mm. obviously acquired a lot of knowledge that way. But he wrote this book before he encountered the Necronomicon or unspeakable cults or anything like that. Hmm, Possibly so. So do we take it that he's channeling the mythos? Yeah. Or is it just that, I don't know, he's hit upon uh, maybe maybe the, the Call of Cthulhu game has imbued this um, book with the title of Azathoth and Other Horrors with more mythoth knowledge than, you know, than perhaps was intended. I don't know. Maybe it was just a book of poetry and the game kind of um, decides that it's a mythos tome. Well, except it talks about his correspondence as well with uh, the author of um, uh, People of the Monolith, uh, which was taken from Robert E. Howard's The Blackstone. Hmm. So it's, it's sort of the idea that there's these two rather mad poets who have been exchanging ideas about the mythos, maybe, you know, writing poetry about it. I mean, if that's the case, you know, and, and it's a supposition that it's not just you know a name he picked out of the ether or out of some conversation... But assuming there's some knowledge behind it, you know, where did he get that from? Well, he does supposedly come from Arkham. Maybe as a kid he slept in the witch house one day. Yeah. Mm. At least you've got the connection there to Azathoth and that it's somewhere that someone could just randomly pull information out of the air. Oh, he yeah. just woke up one morning and thought, hey, this would be a good poem to write. Yeah, yeah just entered into his dreams. Mm-hmm. Mm. But again, yeah, it strikes me that that's something in, in the Call of Cthulhu RPG we don't see explored very much. The, you know, the fact that characters can potentially start out with a bit of Cthulhu mythos without perhaps even having gone through any groundbreaking adventures or anything like that. That Just having grown up in Arkham is enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's, it's there in the water supply. Yeah. yeah. In yeah the something. stories your grandmother told you, in the water you drink. Yeah, I mean, in, in some places you worry about the lead in the water supply. Here you worry about Azathoth in the water supply. <laughs> Come back in a couple of weeks' time when we've got the next episode edited and you can hear uh, all about how we'd use stuff like this in role-playing games, uh, adaptations of the story, good stuff like that. So for now, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. Ah, farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.